Good morning, everyone. You may be seated. Most of you probably know me, but for those who do not, my name is Marty, and I am one of the staff members here at River City, and it is my honor to open the Word of God with you today. I am not the usual preacher guy, um, but I'm excited for this opportunity, so will you please join with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, um, Lord, we do thank you for your word and for the good instruction that it gives for our lives. I pray, Lord, that this morning that you would speak through me. I pray that this morning that you would open hearts to hear your truth. Your truth would go out boldly and clearly. It would change lives. Lord, I pray that we would all know you and love you more because of it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, the passage we'll be looking at this morning is Psalm 21. So you can begin by turning your Bibles there to Psalm 21. If you were here last week, you heard Pastor Jake preach on Psalm 20. And this week's Psalm, number 21, is generally understood to be somewhat of a sequel to Psalm 20. Both of them have similar styles, and they were likely liturgical pieces sung or spoken by the people of Israel. Psalm 20 was probably given as the king and his soldiers were heading out for battle, and the people prayed that God would save the king in the future tense. In Psalm 21, the people are rejoicing because God had indeed saved the king, past tense. He was returning home in happy celebration. And that is most likely the original context for the passage today. And I want you to have that context in mind as I read through the psalm. Remember that this is a joyful, happy exaltation for what God has done for his anointed king. So please read with me. Psalm 21, to the choir master, a psalm of David. O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices. And in your salvation, how greatly he exalts. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. Selah. For you meet him with rich blessings and you set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asked life of you, you gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him. For you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord. And through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth, and their offspring from among the children of man. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed, for you will put them to flight. You will aim at their faces with your bows. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. 
So we're going to get right into it this morning. The main point of the message that I hope to make for you all is this. Rejoice in the completed and the future victory of the king. Rejoice in the completed and future victory of the king. As God's people, we have much to rejoice over. We should be the most joyful people on the planet. Yet often I feel like our worship is more like a routine that we go through, or even apathetic at times. And I hope looking into this psalm today will help us truly see how we can have joy over all things, and that this psalm will help us to have a renewed desire to praise the name of the Lord in joy and gladness. Now, if you look over the psalm in the ESV, you'll see that it is split rather conveniently into two halves, with a short concluding verse in verse 13. These two halves will make up my two points, and the concluding verse will be the uniting theme tying them both together throughout. My first point is taken from verses 1 through 7, and it is that we can rejoice in the completed victory of the king. My second point is from verses 8 through 12. We can rejoice in the future victory of the king. So let's get started with point number one, and we'll begin by looking at verse number one. O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exalts. So right off the bat, this first verse tells us three things about the psalm. First, it tells us the subject of the psalm is the king. Now, unlike most other psalms in the Bible, this psalm is not written from the typical first-person point of view. Even though the title of the psalm attributes it to King David, it doesn't read, O Lord, in your strength I rejoice, and in your salvation how greatly I exalt, like David does in most of his writing. Instead, it says, the king, or he and him, suggesting that it was meant to be read by somebody else besides David. And the last verse of the psalm supports this idea when it says, we will sing and praise your power. So most likely, this psalm was originally sung by a group of people, just as we saw last week in Psalm 20. Now this is important to keep in mind throughout the rest of the verses. Often when we read a psalm like this, it is natural and it's usually warranted for us to consider how the words could be applied to us personally. Consider for a moment the famous Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. When reading that psalm, we usually take it to mean that the Lord is not just David's shepherd, but he's my shepherd too. But Psalm 21 doesn't make that application quite so simple because I am not a king, and neither are you. The second thing verse 1 tells us about this joyful psalm is that the mood is one of victory, rejoicing, and praise. This first verse contains two parallel lines, which is common in the psalms. And it says that in the Lord's strength, the king rejoices. And in his salvation, the king exalts. Now, I personally don't know Hebrew, but I did look up both of these words, uh, rejoice and exalt, in Hebrew, 
And it turns out that they both basically mean the same thing, to rejoice. My guess is that the ESV translators didn't want to be redundant in their language, so they used two words instead of one. But a different translation could have simply used the word rejoice twice. In the Lord's strength, the king rejoices. And in his salvation, the king rejoices. And this emphasis on rejoicing sets the stage for the remainder of the psalm. The entire passage is one of rejoicing. It is a happy psalm. The third thing we see in this first verse is a little about why the king is rejoicing. Again, there's a parallel in verse 1 between the Lord's strength and his salvation. So we can presume that these two things go together. The Lord's strength was shown in his salvation. The king is rejoicing because the Lord, in his strength, has given him salvation. Now I want to talk for just a moment about that word salvation. The Hebrew word Yeshua. You may be familiar with this word because it's also the Hebrew word for Jesus. Most often when we hear the word salvation, we think of salvation from sin, which is often true in the New Testament. However, the word salvation is not limited to sin. It can be used to refer to being saved or delivered from any kind of danger. In the original context of this psalm, David is likely writing about being saved from his physical enemies, perhaps the Philistines or some other nation attacking Israel. And although we certainly do rejoice over our salvation from sin, David is likely not making reference to his personal salvation from sin in the original context. So put together, in verse 1, we see that the king rejoices in the Lord's salvation, and this really sets us up well for the rest of the psalm, which is why we took a bit longer to dwell on verse 1. The next six verses go on to proclaim more reasons why the king rejoices. I've put them together into a list to better visualize them together. These verses tell us that the king rejoices because he has been given his heart's desire, the request of his lips, rich blessings, a crown of fine gold, life, length of days forever and ever, glory, salvation, splendor, majesty, blessings forever, the joy of God's presence, and immovability. These are the things that the king is rejoicing over. Now, this is a rather lengthy list, and it looks like the king has much more to be rejoicing over than just his salvation. However, I don't believe that these verses are just a random assortment of things that David just happens to be rejoicing over at the time. See, I might pray a prayer something like this. God, I thank you for my job and my family, and I thank you for Jesus and the Bible and my friends. But I think David was a little bit more intentional and had a little bit more focus when he was writing this psalm. See, the blessings listed here are all related to each other. So, we could go through them each one at a time individually, but I think a better use of our time this morning would be to give an overview of David's main point in all of these verses. And the summary statement that I came up with for verses 1 through 7 goes like this. The king rejoices in the Lord because the Lord saved him from death 
and has enthroned him in glory. I will say that again so you note takers have some time to write it down, although it should be on the screen. The king rejoices in the Lord because the Lord saved him from death and has enthroned him in glory. David is rejoicing in the Lord's strength and salvation. He had victory over his enemy, and he wasn't dead. God granted him life, and now he had glory, splendor, and majesty as the king of the land. But remember, we are not the king. This psalm was most likely sung by other Israelites who were also not the king. And they were the ones singing how blessed the king is. Now, does that seem a little weird to you? Does it seem a little weird that the king would write a psalm about how much the Lord has blessed him and then have other people sing it about him? This feels a little arrogant or self-focused to me. Can you imagine if Pastor Jake wrote a worship song for us to sing at church and the lyrics said, the pastor rejoices that God gave him such a wonderful family. The pastor exalts that God bestowed upon him such a beautiful beard. I would feel a little weird singing that song at church. Well, it would make sense for Pastor Jake to sing that song in the privacy of his own shower. But he wouldn't ask us to sing that with him. So why is it different for David? Why did he get to write a song about his blessings to be read and used in worship for thousands of years by other people? Well, to answer that question, we have to understand that the people living during the time of this psalm were very different in context than the people living here in the 21st century America. And because of this, it may be hard for us to get as excited about what is going on in this psalm. To help us understand this, for a minute, I want you to imagine that you are a common villager living in Israel during the time of King David when this psalm was written. You are an Israelite. Your people have been explicitly chosen out of all the nations of the earth to be God's treasured possession. However, your people have been unfaithful to God for generations. One generation of your ancestors all died in the Sinai wilderness without reaching the promised land because of their unbelief. Not long after, during the time of the judges, your ancestors constantly rebelled and sought after other gods, and God allowed them to be conquered by other nations. Most recently, you finally had a king in King Saul, who many thought would be your deliverer from your enemies, only to see him fail and turn aside from the Lord yet again. But now, after centuries of waiting, you have a king on the throne who is known as one after God's own heart. You have a king who loves God and delights in him. He is ruling the people with justice and wisdom, he was chosen by God, and God has clearly shown that he is with him. God has promised that his kingdom will be an eternal kingdom. And now here he is, riding victoriously into Jerusalem after defeating the enemies that have harassed, harassed 
your people for centuries. If you were in that situation, you would probably be out on the streets singing too. You'd probably be dancing and shouting, long live the king. I'm not much of a dancer, but I'd probably be out there getting my groove on too. See, this is the kind of joy that comes from having a godly and victorious leader. That is the joy that comes from having a leader who's both able to save you and lead you in the ways of God. And that's why this context is not weird for the people to be singing about the blessings of the king. For as Jake preached about last week, when the king is saved, the people are saved. And when the king is victorious, the people are victorious. And when the king is blessed, the people are blessed. For as the king goes, so goes the people. Now, if you haven't connected the dots yet, everything that has been said so far about the joy of King David and the people of Israel is only a foreshadowing of the joy of our King Jesus and for us, the Church of God. Let's go back for a moment to the summary statement that I made for verses 1 through 7. The king rejoices in the Lord because the Lord saved him from death and has enthroned him in glory. Our king, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the true fulfillment of this psalm. He is the one who was truly saved from death, and he is the one who has been glorified, not just as king of Israel, but king of all. King David rejoiced in his salvation from death, but Jesus rose from the dead. Acts 2.24 says that God raised Jesus up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. King David was given a crown of fine gold, but Revelation 19.12 says that Jesus' eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. King David was given metaphorical length of days forever and ever, but of Jesus it is said in Luke 1.33, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. King David was given glory, splendor, and majesty. But in Revelation 5.12, the angels sing out about Jesus, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. King David was glad in the joy of God's presence, but of Jesus, he said, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He is at the right hand of God in gladness right now. And just like King David's salvation from his enemies meant victory and blessing for Israel, so also King Jesus Salvation from death means victory and blessing for us. Just like the people of Israel would have danced in the streets and praised God for saving the king, so we also have even a greater reason to celebrate and praise. For God raised Jesus from the dead, conquering sin and securing eternal salvation. That's really, really good news. Our king is victorious. Our king defeated death, 
Our king has an eternal kingdom, and he is seated in glory. How often do you think about Jesus' great victory over death? How often do you let it sink into your hearts that we worship a king who defeated death? Death. Perhaps the scariest, most uncontrollable problem of all, Jesus defeated. And now he reigns over all the earth in all glory imaginable. These are the things that we should dwell on and rejoice over. As it says in verse 13, be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. It is with that attitude that we should be singing our worship songs this morning and every morning. A couple questions to consider, both now and in your community groups this week. What tends to be your attitude of worship? Do you remember the victory of our Savior over death and respond with rejoicing? And if not, what keeps you from this joy? Okay, moving on. As you probably noticed, we're not finished with the psalm. We have six verses left, so we're going to keep going. As I mentioned at the beginning, my second point is this. We can rejoice in the future victory of the king. As we look at verses 8 through 12, we can see that the psalm has taken a drastic turn from the first half. Verses 1 through 7 focused on the king and God answering him, saving him and blessing him. But now in verses 8 through 12, the focus shifts completely to God's judgment on his enemies. And the language gets a little intense. Once again, I've made another list to help organize these points together. Verses 8 through 12 say that the Lord will do the following to his enemies. Make them as a blazing oven. Swallow them up in wrath. Consume them with fire. Destroy their descendants from the earth. Put them to flight and aim at their faces with his bows. Wow. That is rather uncomfortable. These words don't sound pleasant to our ears. Judgment is not fun to talk about. It almost feels wrong in light of God's mercy and grace. However, we cannot ignore the text, so we must look deeper and past our initial reaction to know God's good word for us in these verses. And the first thing I want to point out is that this psalm is still one of rejoicing. There's no indication that the mood has changed to one of gloom. In fact, the last verse of the passage, verse 13, shows that the mood has remained one of rejoicing and praise. So while our modern cultural tendencies may cause us to read these verses with apprehension, This was certainly not the case for the Israelites. They probably sang these verses with as much gusto as they began. And why was that? Well, in order to understand this better, I think we must once again put ourselves into the shoes of the original audience and think about 
what probably came into their minds when they thought about God's enemies? The people of Israel had enemy nations all around them who were continually at war with them. And one nation in particular seemed to have an especially difficult time with them, and that being the Philistines. In the book of Judges, it says that Israel was oppressed by the Philistines for 18 years. And if that wasn't enough, later, the Philistines ruled over them another 40 years. Early in the book of 1 Samuel, the Philistines killed 4,000 Israelites in one battle. And then, if that wasn't enough, in the next battle, they killed 30,000. The Bible says that King Saul fought the Philistines for his entire life, and he was eventually killed by them. The Philistines had such power over Israel at one time that they could outlaw even blacksmithing so that no one could make even a sword. They took over Israelite cities and homes, and they lived in them. And those were just the things explicitly mentioned in the Bible. Can you imagine living in a country being constantly harassed by the nations around you. I give this short history of the Philistines to help us see that the enemy wasn't just an annoyance, but was a terrible menace to their life. The people of Israel would have had no peace as long as the Philistines and the other evil nations harassed them. So when they sang these words of the psalm, it wasn't uncomfortable for them, It was rather a hope-filled celebration for the future victory that God would give the king over their enemies. They were looking forward to their enemy completely defeated and finally having peace in their land. This was something well worth getting excited about. The Israelites declared God's victory and they rejoiced at its coming. And if they rejoiced that much, in their earthly redemption, how much more reason do we have to rejoice in the future redemption from our king? See, the Israelites had human enemies who pillaged their land, took their cities, and killed many people, and they looked forward to an earthly victory, which would have given them earthly security. But our king has his sights set on a much greater enemy than a few evil nations. Our King Jesus will have his judgment on all evil that is both seen and unseen. And this won't be just a temporary defeat, but the ultimate defeat of sin, death, and all suffering. And when Jesus brings his judgment, there will be an eternal peace and an eternal security. See, the reason why there are so many problems that we live with is because of the power of sin and death in this world. That is why we suffer. Sin has brought a curse upon all creation, and now evil distorts and perverts everything that was created to be good. If we want to live in eternal peace and security, then we should rejoice that God will have his judgment upon evil. We should rejoice like the Israelites, that God will swallow up and consume his enemies in his wrath. That's good news. For if sin 
and death were never destroyed, then restoration would never come. The perpetual consequences of sin would continue forever, but God will destroy his enemies, and that is well worth rejoicing over. As Josh read earlier in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes that in the end, Jesus will deliver the kingdom to God after destroying every rule and every authority and power, and that he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, the last enemy to be destroyed being death. Once again, I want to make that emphatic. Christ is going to destroy death. Death. Can you imagine life without death? Can you really imagine eternal life? Probably not, but it's good for us to try. Think about the suffering that you've endured, either now or in the past. Chances are good that the suffering somehow related to death, although it's certainly related to sin somehow. It may have felt like Satan had won and that everything was dark. Four years ago, my father passed away, and his death was the result of cancer. But still, that was even a result of sin. It was one of the darkest times of my life. But think about this. One day, Jesus will destroy death, and he will do away with all his enemies for all time. Everything wrong will be gone. No more reason for pain or sadness or suffering anymore. How often do you think about the future victory of Jesus over all of his enemies and rejoice in your heart? How often do you set your focus upon this future hope we have in the restoration of all things? We live with problems plaguing us every day. We are accustomed to the consequences of sin. That is our current life. But are we content here? Or do we long for Christ's kingdom to come? Do we rejoice in the hope of Christ's final judgment on evil? Let us remember the glorious hope we have because every cause of pain, suffering, and death will be defeated by our victorious king. And that is very, very good news. The only way this is not good news is if you are counted as one of God's enemies. God's justice is no reason to rejoice if you have not yet acknowledged him as your king. If Jesus is not your king, then you still belong to the enemy. His victory is not your victory. See, the Israelites could sing the song because it was their king who was victorious. The Philistines weren't singing along. They had no reason to rejoice in it. And by nature, we are all Philistines. Ephesians chapter 2 says that by nature, we are all children of wrath, dead in our sins. But the good news is that the borders to the kingdom of God are not yet closed. God is more than welcoming to all refugees fleeing the kingdom of destruction. By God's grace, 
anyone who submits to Jesus as their king is welcomed into his kingdom. The doors are open and there is no entrance fee. You don't need to bring anything. In fact, you can't bring anything. To enter the kingdom of God, you must simply give your allegiance to the king and you have gained lifelong citizenship. This is a good kingdom, an eternal kingdom, and our king is alive with length of days that never ends. He has a crown of fine gold upon his head. He is the most blessed forever. He can never be moved. He will find his enemies and consume them. And though the wicked plans evil against him, he will put them to flight. Again, as it says in the last verse of this psalm, be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. As I conclude my message this morning, I ask that this would be our song today and this week. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. May we magnify our King in heaven and may we exalt him in praise. May our hearts be lifted up in the great hope that we have in heaven and may we rejoice in the completed and the future victory of our King, Jesus Christ. Please pray with me. Lord, you are victorious. Lord, you are victorious over death. Lord, you are victorious over all of your enemies, and you, you accomplished that on the cross. Lord, you died, and you rose again, and now you reign in heaven forever and ever. And Lord, we are so thankful that in your grace and mercy, You've called us your own. You have made us not your enemies any longer. But you've given us forgiveness. And now we look forward to the day when you will defeat all of your enemies. Lord, we look forward to the day when all evil and wickedness is gone. We can live in peace forever, worshiping our King and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we love you, and I pray that that truth would sink into our hearts today and every day. In Jesus' holy name, amen.